Welcome back to the Act Two podcast, a podcast for the real life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And before we get into our awesome Christmas holiday episode, the blacklist just came out for 2020. Woo! And a couple Act Two writers were on there. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Steve Desmond and Noga Puli. Steve's script, Saturday Night Ghost Club, was written with his partner. Michael Sherman, and the logline's really cool. It's after being haunted by a terrifying entity, a 12-year-old boy teams up with his eccentric uncle and three other misfits to form their own ghost club, investigating all the paranormal sites in town so they can find and confront the ghost that's tormenting him, which I think is so great. Yeah. Uh, Noga's script, High Society, is uh, appropriately hilarious. It's about a depressed woman stuck in a conservative small Texas town who starts microdosing the entire town with marijuana to make them all get along. And if you know Noga, you know, it sort of makes sense. Um, so congratulations to them. All right. So, I mean, our, our special holiday episode, it's about my favorite Christmas movie of all time, Lethal Weapon. <laughs> and Josh is going to set it up for us. Yeah, a movie that doesn't get tossed into the is this a Christmas movie or not debate like Die Hard. I mean, it's right up there with Die Hard in terms of Christmasness, 100%. Yeah, so this episode, uh, it was recorded pre-pandemic, one of a few episodes that we actually kept, and it was right before everything started to close down, so we obviously never released it, but we held on to it because we love it so much. It's a breakdown of Lethal Weapon. It's with our friend Dave Levinson. And also, we need to note that midway through, there's a little a little scenario where I got pulled away. I got a message from my wife, and she was taking a walk around the block. And basically, there was a kid on the corner of the street who was involved in a domestic dispute. So I messaged Tasha and Dave. And I'm like, guys, get out here. So we stopped the podcast, go save the life of this child. And then return to podcasting when we uh, were done. It was uh, it was like an hour break somewhere in between. It was it was it was a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. So if you sense a little shift in tone midway through the podcast, that's what happened. Yeah. But this is a fun podcast. We you know broke out the Casamigos because it's a breakdown and um, just kind of chatted about Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Enjoy. Enjoy. Act Two podcast. I'm Josh Hallman. I'm Tasha Hugh. And again, we have the one and only. That's where you say your name, <laughs> Dave Levinson. <laughs> I'm back. He's so back. Powerful. Sorry, I missed the cue. Yeah, we uh, we're doing a breakdown or a deep dive of Lethal Weapon. The breakdown. The breakdown of Lethal Weapon. Ah. And I actually read in preparation for this a article that basically said that. Not much was changed from the script. There was one scene added, one or two scenes. From the draft that you read? From No, just from Shane Black's original draft. Well, that kind of leads me into the first thing that I want to talk about. Wow. I feel like watching movies and talking about them is has always been extremely helpful to me to just see like how the masters are doing it. So yeah. that's something that we do in Act 2. Just every month we try to study sc- screenwriters who are exceptional, who are considered sort of masters in the field. And we landed for our first breakdown on Lethal Weapon, which I think we all agree is one of the best movies of all time. Yeah. Yes. And I also I want to say that we're back to having margaritas because we will hear 
probably ice jingling. It's also coffee. being recorded. This is being recorded on National Margarita Day. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what happens when happy, na- ha- happy National Margarita <laughs> Day happy to everybody. Day. I hope you. I hope you're all drinking one. <laughs> Pull over. Yeah. Pause. Well, I, re- I, re- I realized as I was saying it that they're not. It's not going to be National Margarita Day when they're listening to this. But maybe it will be. I hope that you all had a margarita on National Margarita Day. Um. Yeah. So your comment about the script sort of leads me into sort of the rabbit hole that I went down in looking at Lethal Weapon, um, which is let's talk about the myth of how Lethal Weapon was written because I feel like all writers know this legend of Shane Black, right? I know that there's like a good story behind it, but I couldn't tell it to you off the top of my head right now. Josh, I feel like you know. I feel like we've talked about this several times. Um, Refresh my memory. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's always this sort of myth and legend that hangs over um, my head, at least, uh, where like Shane graduated college, immediately wrote Lethal Weapon in like a few weeks, sold it also immediately for more money than anyone had ever spent on a spec script at the time and just like launched his career right out of college, which is always a myth that has depressed me utterly and completely. But does that ring a bell for you guys? Yeah. I mean, I know he was like the rock star screenwriter of the yeah. 80s and 90s, like late 80s and 90s. I feel like Josh, you and I have talked about this because we both got mutually depressed. Yeah. About no, like, I, I didn't how know does he was, write it in a few weeks? Uh, yeah, I didn't. Oh, in a few weeks. Yeah, that's what that's what the the myth says. I always get so I read uh, not to get off the lethal weapon, but that Simon Kinberg wrote the either draft or the very extensive outline for Mister and Mrs. Smith while in college. Yeah. And J.J. Abrams sold a script while in college, and yeah. like hearing that stuff is definitely like. So we're behind the eight ball, you're we're, saying? We're a little we're bit behind. We're extremely yeah. behind the eight ball. While they were selling scripts, I was like blacked out in Wisconsin. <laughs> well, priorities. <laughs> anyway. Well, that sort of led me into looking into the real story behind how this was actually written. And it calmed me down a lot. And it makes me feel a lot better. And so I kind of wanted to walk through it because, one, I think it's very helpful as writers to not believe that sort of varnished hype of how these amazing movies get made, which is it's so easy. It just just kind of like like dropped from the gods in this like amazing form, which it's not the case. Every amazing script took a lot of work. So I'm going to take you back. So we're 1983. Shane Black is graduating from film school at UCLA, and he is not immediately writing Lethal Weapon. He's going to work at a temp agency as a typist. He's a data entry clerk at the Summer Olympics. He's an usher at a movie theater. He's doing all these shitty jobs that we all do when we come out of college. Then he asks his parents to give him a little money because he wants to stop working so that he can develop a movie for six months. So he does that. His parents, for some reason, say yes to that. He develops a movie called Shadow Company, which is like a supernatural thriller set in Vietnam. Um, This goes nowhere, but it does help him get an agent where a friend kind of recommends him. He does the whole meetings around town, meets kind of mid-level execs and producers, and then he starts writing this script that he said was kind of inspired by Dirty Harry or like this idea of a Frankenstein guy who he said, quote, was reviled for what he did and what he's capable of and the things that he believed in, but then is eventually the only one who can solve the problem of the movie. That first draft was 138 pages. He calls it an urban Western and it's super dark and he calls it Lethal Weapon. As far as I could tell from the different interviews that I was reading, it seems like his first draft is actually completely unrecognizable 
from what we have. There's just action scenes were absolutely huge. Characters, plot were totally different. Um, like in the end of the movie now, you just have one kind of car chase where Mel Gibson is chasing Mr. Joshua at the end. Yeah. The original script had this like huge like tractor trailer car chase with helicopters and the tractor trailer blows up and there's like just cocaine in the tractor trailer and awesome. it just starts like snowing cocaine over the Hollywood sign. <laughs> I'm in for that. <laughs> Which, like, I kind of think would be would have been pretty epic, but apparently Shane Black actually hated this first draft and he threw it away and he just like moved on with his life. Eventually, he does pull it out of the trash and gives it to his agent. His agent's just like, "Yeah, sure, let's send it out." There's a lot of trash stories. You know, Stephen King threw Carrie in the trash. Oh my gosh! And then his wife pulled it out. I also wonder at that time was it, it was a literal trash can. So like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, are we sure he actually threw it in the trash? Uh, apparently, he definitely like put it aside for a while. So, so you know where I'm poking holes in your yeah Shane Black history. Yeah. If I had read once, and maybe this is poking holes in my own history of Shane Black, is that the Nice Guys was one of the original titles of Lethal Weapon. Really? Yeah. Wow. That is not something that I have found. You could be right. Could be wrong though. If only we had computers <laughs> to look this up. <laughs> we'd right. invite Shane on the podcast to ask him. I am gonna invite Shane. Um, so he sends it out to all these studios, and like any writer, great or terrible, he gets rejected by all of them, except for Mark Canton, who was famously produced 300. Yeah. And was briefly a producer on Black Bell. Mm. Mine. I remember really? that. Mine. Yeah. Moment of silence. Um. I know, a moment of silence. But he was this executive at Warner Brothers at the time, and he fell in love with it. And presumably he saw this young guy out of college and was like, I can't get this sold at Warner's with just this dude. I need to attach a hot producer. So he sends it to Joel Silver, who, Joel Silver, of course, he produced Matrix and Die Hard and Predator, Demolition Man. Yeah. One of my favorites. Um, but he was just coming off of Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like the action king of hours. the 80s. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Mark Canton sends Joel Silver lethal weapon. Joel loves it. He attaches himself. And only then does Warner Brothers say, okay, we're confident enough to buy this. They shell out 250 grand to Shane Black for this. So then Joel does, I think what all producers have done to all of us, which is, yeah, we love your script. Let's fix it. And so they start developing it together. And the process actually sounds like it was kind of fun. Like Shane just camped out at Joel Silver's office. He would write. He'd go knock on Joel's door and be like, hey, can I pitch you something? Or like, hey, here's some pages. What do you think? And Joel would read it, give wow. him feedback, and he would just revise and revise from there. So as he's writing Lethal Weapon, he's also writing, co-writing three other projects. He's co-writing Monster Squad, Predator, um, with his college buddy who... Fred, his, his name is Fred Decker. He ended up directing RoboCop 3. What? I'm just skeptical of all of this. <laughs> <laughs> I, this I feel like this is wrong. I know because it's breaking reason. down these, the myth of who he is. Are these three other things he's writing, are they like jobs or are these specs? They are like that. This is what's a little bit confusing about sort of this. It seems like this time period of writer or Shane Black in particular. He seems like co-write all of his stuff with buddies, uh -huh. just like- Which like I kind of love that idea. I love that idea too, which is yeah. something Josh and I were talking about before this started. So yeah. remind me to talk about that. But 
Um, yeah, like his, his buddy Fred Decker was writing Monster Squad and his, his, it was his college buddy. So he pro- like Fred probably just said, like, hey, I'm working on this thing. And they just started collaborating. Mm-hmm. And so I think he is co-writer. He's definitely co-writer on Predator. I'm not sure if he's credited on Monster Squad. Um, but so these are just like projects that he's, he's just doing, doing like for side. fun, though, on the side. Yeah, on yeah. the side. Okay. So they finally, Joel, Joel and, and Shane get their draft into Mark Canton. Um, and Mark Canton and WB immediately passes it on to Leonard Nimoy to direct. Leonard Nimoy? Yes. What website did you find this from? <laughs> it's true. This is true. <laughs> okay. Leonard Nimoy plays Spock. He directed Three Men and a Baby. Leonard which... Nimoy directed Three Men and a Baby? Yes. And it became the Hang most on. successful <laughs> movie of that year, which is even more successful than Lethal Weapon. So then I'm looking Warner... <laughs> this up while you're... I just... All right. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So then Warner Brothers, okay, they get turned down by Spock. They decide instead to go to Richard Donner, who ended up directing Lethal Weapon. Now, Richard Donner had just directed The Goonies, which was a huge success at the time, one of the top grossing movies of 1985. So Richard Donner, he gets the script, he's reading it in bed with his wife, and he's like so used to getting all these huge, what he calls sort of gratuitous action films. But he stops when he reads Lethal Weapon because it's not about action, it's about character. And he actually like gives it to his wife immediately and she's like, oh yeah, you have to do this. So that's how he gets attached. But Richard Donner's problem is that this script is way too dark for him. To him, he feels like humor is what leads to compassion for these characters. So he brings in a writer of his, who he just likes, to do a comedy and kind of character pass on the script. And that writer is Jeffrey Boehm. Now, I went down this rabbit hole on Jeffrey Boehm, which I find very interesting. I'd like to apologize to Jeffrey Boehm because you mentioned this in your email uh, before before recording this podcast and and I had that no idea that anybody other than Shane Black exactly and I saw that and I was like I'm sorry who (laughs) exactly um and I just I I like this story because I feel like it really demystifies this sort of legend which makes me feel better honestly about how these movies get made Mm -hmm. so Jeff Boehm is an interesting case where so he graduates UCLA Film School as an uh, the grad program in 1973. So 10 years before Shane Black is graduating from undergrad. And I just don't believe any of this. I don't know what it is. I'm having like a, a problem. So it's like telling you Santa Claus isn't real. It's hard. <laughs> it kind of is actually. <laughs> so Jeff Bohm is told by his screenwriting professor in school, you are not very good. And he's like, well, I guess I just got to get better then. Yeah. And his professor is so impressed with him. He's like, all right, I'll be your mentor. So they start working together and it, he also has a lot of very familiar, like heartbreaking stories where like the day he finishes his first ever script, it's a biopic on John Dillinger. He reads in the deadline that uh, a Dillinger movie is just being produced. Like it started that day. Nice. So all of his, like, and this happened too. He later wrote like a space movie and men in black came out on that same sort of like time. He decided Damn. to produce this like space and uh, detective story. I hate to laugh, but <laughs> it sucks. Cause <laughs> yeah. like, I get it. Um, <clears throat> So somewhere in there, his professor helps him out, gets him an agent, and he finally meets this guy named Tony Bill, who is a producer who produced The Sting. Tony uh, Bill? Tony Bill. He produced uh, that Robert Redford, Paul Newman movie, The Sting. And Tony Bill says to Jeff Boehm, okay, you're making $200 a week at, I think it was like Warner Brothers Studios or Paramount or something, where he's just like a... He's, he's the kid responsible for making sure film gets to the movie theater without getting fucked up. So he's like, all right, you're making $200 a week doing that bullshit. What if I pay you $200 a week 
to just write for me. And the only catch is that everything you finish, I get a free option on. Wow. So one, can you even imagine that deal with a producer now? It's just as a producer. It's like, I'll pay you 200 bucks a week to write for me. Come up with original ideas, find stuff. And it, it would be the equivalent now to like 1600 bucks a week. Oh, shit. $1,600? Yeah. yeah. I would definitely do that. Yeah. But then right. they automatically have a free option on everything that you write? Yeah. Was it a good producer? He did the sting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'd have you to know. think about it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I go to the place. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. So around this time, he writes a movie called Straight Time, which stars Gary Busey. So um, it starts to get connected here. And we're talking about... What was the guy's Jeff name? Jeff Boehm. Jeff Boehm? Yeah. B-O-A-M. Oh. Don't forget Jeff's name again, please. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to want to forget him when I tell you the end of this story. Oh, fuck. <laughs> it's okay. going to blow yeah. up your world. Okay, so Straight Time gets made. Um, Boehm starts working on other Warner Brothers movies. And they decide, Warner Brothers, the studio, decides to hire him as a feature staff writer. So essentially, he gets paid $3 million for three years... And now he's contractually obligated to do polishes. Is that like a million passes. a year or three million per year? For One three million years. per year okay. for three years. So he does polishes. He does passes on Warner, Warner Brothers scripts that just like aren't ready yet to be greenlit. Yeah. Also as part of his deal, he gets to pick and choose which projects he wants to work on and he can produce or direct any of them if this he wants incredible. to. Yeah, it sounds incredible. Yeah, Sounds amazing. <laughs> This guy like this guy cracked the code. I know. <laughs> yeah. And also, I want to know if like if they were handing these kinds of deals out then as like a fairly normal thing, because you know how they talk about um, Carrie Fisher and how she was this um, sort of epic script doctor, and no one sort of knew that. Yeah. About her, I wonder if she was getting deals like this, or if these deals exist now, and my agents just haven't told me. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it's very interesting. Does this story end about where he is in his life? He, right now? He is unfortunately six feet under. Oh. But well, it ends with a, th- with a story that you will enjoy. Rest in peace, yeah. Yeah. So now it's time for the Lost Boys script, if you remember that movie. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do the podcast ever. This seems like this <laughs> yeah. is it. Like, this is it. This, <laughs> this is, is it. Really I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> riveted. I, yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. So, like, worlds are starting to collide, right? Gary Busey stars in this Jeffrey Bohm guy's first ever movie. And now Lost Boys comes across Warner Brothers' de- desk, which, do you, do you guys remember Lost Boys? That Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, the Peter Pan mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, sexy vampire movie. Well, Richard Donner was originally attached to direct that. And coming off of Goonies, it was like a kid's, more of a kid's movie. It was actually, like, written to be literally the Lost Boys. Which is funny because my memory of that is just, like, is so super sexual that as a kid, I was like, oh, I feel like I shouldn't be watching that movie. Yeah. Um, he goes on to do a rewrite to make it sexier. And that's the movie we end up seeing today is Jeff Bohm's version of Lost Boys. Wow. But then Jeff's next step is he goes on to write one of the greatest movies of all time. So Spielberg calls him up, tells him, come write on Indiana Jones 3. I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. There's no way this is like a real story. Fake news. No. I'm out. It's true. It's true. All right, keep going. So Spielberg calls him up and and asks him to do this. And Jeff says he was nervous about taking the job because as he put it, there was the blood of like five or six writers already 
on this script. Nobody could crack how to do this, including Lucas. Spielberg thought his idea was stupid to do a movie about the Holy Grail. Chris Columbus did a pass where they went to China and it was some kind of supernatural ghost demon. But the latest iteration, the, the draft that Jeff Bohm gets on his desk is a Holy Grail story where it's focusing on the King Arthur version of the myth. That's kind of what they stuck with. But the Sean Connery character, the dad, is just a MacGuffin. So it's the thing that gets the movie going, and then you don't meet the Sean Connery character till the very end. And Jeff Bohm was like, no, it should be about the father-son relationship. So he transforms the whole movie, makes it about that, and Spielberg was gonna, about to direct Rain Man, but Jeff Bohm's script gets in there like an early draft of the new father-son. <laughs> Steven Spielberg was going to direct Rain Man? Yeah. And so he's like, I'm not doing Rain Man. I'm going to do Indiana Jones 3. What? This is like a lesson on Hollywood history. <laughs> yeah. I I wasn't prepared for this. I wasn't prepared for this at all. But I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, me too. What's great is like the process that he went through to write Indiana Jones 3. So he had this draft already. What he, he, he just ended up sitting in a room for like, I think it was two weeks, eight hours a day with George Lucas, and they just beat the whole script out together, the new version. And Lucas had all of the set pieces that he wanted, and Jeff Bohm just came in to like figure out how to get there. Yeah. So that's what they kind of turned into Spielberg, um, where he was like, get, get on this, go write this draft, get it into me before I direct Rain Man. So. Is this how you pitch? Is this? Like, I, I was I was wondering. Is this this is that amazing? That same exact thing. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Because yes. I thought it might only be interesting to me. So no, I'm glad. I, I am <laughs> on the edge of my seat. <laughs> me <Well>. too. <laughs> I don't even know what we're doing. I know. Now. I feel like I'm in like the audience. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um. Well, it's. Well, now I feel like I feel so much pressure now to end this story on like, yeah, an amazing better, note. Yeah. Don't fumble at the one yard line. I think I'm going to. Um. So. Just, I think, Josh, because you love this movie as much as I do, I found it interesting that so he um, kind of sends in an outline. Warner Brothers hires him off of this outline that he's developed with George Lucas. They sign the contract on April 14th, 1987, and he just writes it for the next five months, turns in a draft September 15th. Apparently he gets very few notes because he turns it around by September 30th, and that's the draft that we all have and that we all know and love today. You're talking about Indiana Jones. I'm talking about Indiana Jones. Oh, oh, I thought yeah. you were talking about, okay, yeah. I thought we were talking about. Um, we're still on Indy. Yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> but to me, it just, like, this is obviously a very long-winded story, but to me, I found it super interesting because we all have this myth of Shane Black, who's this writer legend, but really, I think. Really, like, one of the most important screenwriters of all time. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Bohm. Jeff Bohm. Yeah. Helped, I think, tremendously make this movie what it is today that we love and just, respond to so much. Just crafting cinema classics from the shadows. Yeah. Because he proceeded to write Lethal Weapon 2 because Shane Black turned in a draft for the sequel and Warner Brothers was like, no, this is way too dark. We do not want to kill Martin Riggs at the end. Yeah. And they decided instead to bring Jeff Bohm back and he re rewrote the whole thing. And then he wrote Lethal Weapon 3 and 4. By himself. So he was a Three by himself for... He was uncredited, I believe. I don't believe they used his script. All right. So wait a minute. Going back to Jeff Bohm. Yeah. We first of all, we need to do an entire podcast dedicated to <laughs> Jeff Bohm. Well, how do you feel now that like this whole myth has been blown up about your hero, Shane Black? I still don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> but next time you meet him when you go to Austin, you can ask him if the story is true. <laughs> I know I read an article, and it, I, Joel Silver had said in the article that I read that. 
Not much had changed from the Shane Black script. I am certain I read that. So what's going on? I don't know. We're Just feeding into ourselves. the Shane Black myth. When I watched interviews with him talking about Lethal Weapon, um, he said that he can see like shades of stuff that he that he did. And of course, like the characters, the concepts, like the theme of this crazy guy who join like becomes part of a family is all him. So I'm yeah. gonna, I don't want to take any of that away from him. But I think a lot of the comedy, the light stuff that makes this movie so special to me too, um, yeah. does not come from him. Although I would say in comparison with today's action comedies, yeah. uh, what makes this movie so special to me is its darkness. I very much agree with that. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure we'll touch on that. I mean, should we touch on that now? I mean, let, we, that is, let's do that now. Like, yeah. what? Well, uh, first of all, is your epic story over? My epic because story is I want to hear the end of it. That's oh, that was the end of it. <laughs> mm, all right. That was, <laughs> that was a the fantastic story. The end is that Jeff Long goes on to write Indiana Jones 3, one of the greatest movies ever made as well. Yeah. All that was missing was like he rewrote Back to the Future. And I would have <laughs> <I would've laughs> just poured myself another margarita and called it a day. The point being that great <laughs> movies are hard to make and sometimes it takes a village. I would say it almost always takes a village. Yeah. Film is a Unless you're Shane medium. Black. <laughs> Unless you're Shane Black. You're refusing you to it. believe it. You're just going to I going ignore everything you just said. <laughs> Unless you're Shane Black and then people make up lies about how it took a village. <laughs> um, all right, so... Well, let's talk. I mean, let's talk about what a buddy action movie is to us now. Currently, I can chime in on this. I had a conversation about this yesterday. Oh well, then by all means, and not to just take the lead, not to completely turn this on myself, but I had written a script. That script, uh, rent a white guy, and I was having a conversation about it with my reps, and my rep had said in a meeting, like I was around, I was, you know, we were all like having dinner or something, and he was telling someone else about this script. And he was like, it was basically a, it was supposed to be a comedy, but it wasn't funny at all. Mm-hmm. And I, and I was like, that's how he no. described your script. Yeah. He, we, he, it, there's, there's more to it. <laughs> and, uh, it was like, we were talking to, I think Rent White Guy's funny. I thought um, so too. But the point being is that I love Lethal Weapon. I love Bad Boys, True yeah. Lies, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And I feel yeah. like there's a very fine line to ba- uh, to walk where you're, it's either like an, action movie or a comedy and like that merger is very delicate so i personally feel like currently it's a little more comedy centric and people just lean towards the comedy if lethal weapon clearly works and this resonates with so many people and this is still the template for so many different movies why don't more producers and studios kind of embrace the dramatic element to these buddy cop movies i think it's a good question and i think the I think the question, the answer is just that it's harder. I think it's easier to just do like a central intelligence, yeah, twenty one Jump Street heat kind of movie where it's the it's just comedy first and character second. You this just throw hard. in two big comedy stars, yeah, yeah, and or like one action star, one comedy star, but then the comedy always takes over. Yeah, and, but sure. like Danny Glover is coming off of Color Purple, mm-hmm. and Mel Gibson had done. Um, like Gallipoli, like war movies, you know, like he was not, these are not comedy actors. And I think that's also what helps make that movie feel for sure. So yeah, I, I just, (laughs) honestly, I just think it's harder. I mean, you you like hear Shane talking about where this movie came from, the sort of dirty, hairy aspect of it all. This idea that it came from really, it came from a theme of a character, this idea that this, this guy who is at the lowest point of his life can still find family and still be called upon to be a hero. I bet if you like ask people who do buddy comedies now, 
the idea or original the original idea usually probably comes from like ah oh, these like two cool characters who come together and like that's yeah. what i get excited about well i think that's absolutely the case because i feel like in most of these movies now it's the characters are caricatures yeah that are like larger than life Whereas in Lethal Weapon, when I was watching it last night, the thing that like really struck me was just how incredibly real the characters are. Yeah. Like they are real people. Yeah. 100%. Like there's this action comedy. And in the first 15 minutes, you've got this like clearly broken guy watching Christmas cartoons in a trailer with a gun in his mouth. Yeah. yeah. And like that you would never see that in something like, you know, central intelligence yeah. or actually if you think of did you guys see Hobbs and Shaw? Of course. Like they have a similar setup for the intro, meaning in Lethal Weapon, you get Murtaugh's opening scene when he wakes up in the morning and then you get a very drastically different um, Martin Riggs opening scene. They do the same thing in Hobbs and Shaw, but it's like played ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Remember that? It's just just played silly and it's, it's easy to pitch that idea because, oh, they're, they're so different. Like, um, the rock is all buttoned up and, you know, Jason Statham is beating people over the head with champagne but yeah it's nothing like going to the depths of suicide and like having a wonderful warm family and i think the opening to me is my absolute favorite part and i think immediately sets the tone for this movie that no other buddy cop movies ever have pulled off i had a note about the opening oh hit us did he wake up with a cigarette in his mouth (laughs) (laughs) 100%. (laughs) (laughs) you know you're a smoker when you can fall asleep with a cigarette in your mouth and it's still there when you wake up but he took like a 10 minute nap (laughs) <laughs> naked but yeah so this uh i guess this is richard back- donner's house by the way really the scene where uh they're shooting the guy by the pool yeah yeah also have lethal weapon going in the background but yeah it really actually like i, I was really trying to think hard about what can relate to lethal weapon currently in terms of like what a buddy comedy is and it's weird that this is even considered a buddy comedy can well, it's interesting the ones you mentioned as your favorites because those follow more in the line of this movie. Yeah. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Bad Boys, is I, I feel like it's definitely a drama first. Totally, mm-hmm. yeah. Comedy's I, just laid over that. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I feel like the comedy versions are, they're not realistic. Yeah. Lethal Weapon is a good example of just kind of like these real people put in an extreme situation. And you know something that I noticed when I was watching it last night, which I had never like consciously thought of before? Is that in like act two, there's, I would say like the first half of act two, I feel like there's like a solid 30 minute or so chunk of the movie where there is no action set yeah. piece. Like no. essentially right after this scene for the next like 30, the scene by the pool at the mansion, uh, for the next like 30 minutes, it's just these guys like spending time together. Yeah. yeah. You, like the, um, the suicide jumper. Yeah. That's completely unrelated to the bad guy plot. Yeah. And I think that's awesome because it's total character. Uh, it's totally character motivated. And it sh- it's there just to show the difference between the two. And then for Danny Glover to kind of accept that, wow, this guy really actually is a psychopath. Yeah. And I love that. I love it too. Because it sort of tricks the audience into feeling something a little thrilling and it feels a little actiony. Yeah. But really to disguise just to, yeah, do a character moment. Yeah. I feel you. like currently... Every scene in action comedies are like, well, how does this relate to the bad guy plot? Whereas it's just character mode. I do think that's the biggest lesson that I've learned from Lethal Weapon. I write a lot of action, big concept kind of things. But if you're basing that in character first and the action plot is just almost secondary, I think you're going to be able to feel it. And 
maybe we get too self-conscious with our writing, too insecure, and that's why we resort to plot. Yeah. Um, also, it is a little bit easier to just like do this formulate plot than to have to think hard about character. But yeah, yeah, definitely makes these movies so much better. Yeah, the character work is so good here that even like by Lethal Weapon Four, I feel like the Murtaugh family is like my family. Yeah. <laughs> like I feel like I know like every member of the Murtaugh family so well by Lethal Weapon Four. You've grown up with them. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. And they're just these like little bit parts yeah. that like it's amazing that they kept the same actors for the entire series but yeah, yeah. i feel like that is just such a uh such a notch in the belt for uh for the for the character writing here yeah i agree i think sort of a good segue into talk about how great lethal weapon is <laughs> yeah is to kind of talk about what what do you feel like are the tropes of a buddy cop movie now like if you could list them what do you think they are like a straight laced guy who gets paired with a wacky, off the wall, unpredictable guy. Yeah. And they have to, you know, come together to uh, accomplish some sort of goal. I agree. That's the main trope. By the way, I don't think Lethal Weapon created any of these tropes. I just think it was executed differently through Shane Black and only Shane Black <laughs> his writing. Uh, I'm 100% team. Jeff Bohm now <laughs> after after that story <laughs> with Jeff Bohm's writing but you know obviously the trope that like what Dave just said and then obviously the car chases there's like the fighting and the arguing yeah the the, the quippy yeah. dialogue yeah what do you think Tasha what are yeah we it's, it's always that wild off the cuff character paired with some kind of yeah like buttoned up but that's it that's like where you start in That's terms, you start. if you're start if you're doing a buddy cop movie, it's like, well, how are these people different? Yeah, and they learn to work together. But I think what's different, I mean, there are many things that are different about Lethal Weapon. Um, yes, you're right. Like it didn't create the buddy cop genre, but it did transform it entirely. Where even before it was still like, if you think of Forty Eight Hours, I was just asked, did Forty Eight Hours come before this? It came before it. Yeah, you have the uh, comedian who's is funny, and you have Nick Nolte, and I think too, like you're also expected in those kinds of movies before this movie to have like a favorite of the pair where like you like Eddie Murphy or you empathize with Eddie Murphy more because he's, he's funny and cool. Whereas Nick Nolte is sort of, he's too buttoned up and so you can't get close to him. Whereas this movie did a great job at you love both characters equally. And I think it's partly because they give them that intro where they're giving them both equal time. You're not really entering this world in one perspective over another. Um, and also the arc of the movie isn't just they learn to work together, which is, I think, the arc of everybody cop movie ever. It's like this nice heartwarming thing that they get to work together. That's not really the arc here. The arc is that a guy who is opening the movie wanting to commit suicide gains a purpose to live by earning a family. Like That has nothing to do with cops. It has nothing to do with criminals, yeah. action, nothing. And I think that's what makes this so special, even though it's still creates or maybe doesn't create the tropes but at least um, plays into the tropes um do you feel like this movie holds up yes <laughs> i mean i'm th- this movie i would say that this lethal weapon and die hard were like the two most important movies of my childhood oh really yes wow um in what way were they important I was just literally obsessed with them both and watched both of them hundreds of times. When I was in, you know, like elementary school, I had this one friend who would come over 
and we would always I would want to we would like play movies mm-hmm. or we would make movies sure. and almost all of them were just ripped right from Lethal Weapon. Wow. And that's all I would ever want to do and he would get like sick of it and he'd be like can we please do something else and I'd <laughs> no. say, I want to play another movie. Um but yeah, but they it, it was always just uh you know mimicking like the exact beats of Lethal Weapon. So yeah. I guess like that's like the earliest my earliest almost subconscious studying of a of film and, and story. Interesting. Yeah. And so How come you don't t- write action movies? I was just gonna ask the exact same thing. <laughs> Where's the action movie? Stephen on? King grabbed you and we Yeah, you uh, Stephen yeah, Stephen King. And then, you know, once ah, it's a it's a whole discussion about being <laughs> boxed in. Yeah. But uh I would love a Dave Levinson action movie. Oh my god! Oh, I mean, I'm trying to figure out what my next spec is going to be. Oh so my gosh, please. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's it. Inspire you? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to write a an an 80s inspired <gasps> oh buddy action gosh. movie. Um, I just got a really strange text. I've got to go outside real quickly. Go for it. Okay. Okay, we just took a short break, uh, a short commercial break. We have a sponsor now. <laughs> Casamigos. Uh, no, we actually, t- we, I, I got a weird message from my wife and we had to run outside and help a young boy. And as fake as that sounds, that's actually, <laughs> it what, does sound fake, but it's real. That's actually what happened. Josh turned into a superhero real quick. Yeah. I, we were in the middle of our buddy cop movie. Mm-hmm. I was, we saw two cops actually. And two LAPD cops Two. this is actually, so meta. This is um, maybe going to segue back into because uh, one of the cops was African American, the other was Asian, mm. and uh, we don't we didn't bring up the fact about like the tropes of the buddy cop movie that they are usually there's usually yeah. uh, ethnic diversity. There is oh, and like they're interestingly about it is weird to just dive into this. <laughs> it is that, we, like, we literally you know drama that we just had. We honestly with just the came back from boy crying and and um, yeah. little cops. But something that they that was interesting about this movie apparently came out in nineteen eighty seven. Seven. Thank wow. you. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> told and you it's most important movie of my childhood. <laughs> at the time, like Richard Donner said that when he was casting for this. Um, someone mentioned, oh, have you seen Color Purple? Like, Dan Glover's performance was amazing. And Richard Donner goes, yeah, but he's black. And then, like, quickly realized, wait, that's me being racist, because in the actual script, there was no description of race at all. He just assumed Murtaugh would be white. And he's like, no, yeah, let's cast it, Danny's great. And then it, like, on its own became a a sort of, uh, like race movie in a way, or like, Mm -hmm. um, it it definitely brought up discussions at that time because race, as you know, like it's not commented on at all in this movie. It just is. And I think that itself became kind of a big deal, Um, but they didn't like intend to make a movie that way. It actually is brought up in the scene that is playing right over my shoulder. Is it? Yeah. One of the little kids goes, that's my true. mommy says, please only shoot black people. That's true. It is rough. <laughs> well, and then and then Mel Gibson starts laughing. Yeah, there are a few uncomfortable moments still in this movie. Yeah, there's a couple moments that... Um, Where I don't know if Mel Gibson is the homophobe in it or just the writing. That's just sort of how it was in the 80s because both are true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're not going to shit on Mel Gibson. We're, we're going to leave that out. We're leave out the crazy stuff of Mel Gibson, right? 
That's not what I mean. This the conversation about. about Mel Gibson being crazy in real life. Yeah. No, we don't have to talk about that. It's okay. not related to the writing. Everyone knows about it. Okay. Um. So let's get back on track. Okay. Let's go back we, to your how outline. How do we get back on track after that? Um. We talked about tropes of a buddy cop movie, just sort of generally. Yeah. How do you feel like Lethal Weapon created those tropes? Like, I, I don't think Lethal Weapon created anybody tro- cop tropes. Do you think they made those tropes better? They took characters from a drama. Yeah. And yeah, let the tropes play out with two characters who they essentially lifted from like a drama, a dark drama. Well, I think it's interesting to talk about how to, how, how this is not a comedy and so many after it are a comedy. And, like what came to mind weirdly was the movie Stuber. Did you guys see that movie? I did, I did not. See Stuber. Um, with Dave Bautista. I'm still, still Great wrestler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that that's like an, an interesting example of how this lethal weapon is so much better than a movie like that, which sort of pairs two vastly different unlikely heroes together. But like the comedy comes from them being so opposite in the way they handle the situation that them like bumping heads is what's supposed to be funny. Yeah. Um, whereas here the humor, like when they're bumping heads at the beginning and they're enemies, it's almost not even funny. There's no humor there. They just like hate each other. Right. Like every now and again, Murtaugh will say like a great line where he's like, God hates me. And then Mur- or Riggs says, hate him back. That's what I'd always do. Like that's not funny. I love but that That's line. them butting yeah. heads. Yeah. And so usually these movies are, the comedy comes from them butting heads for the whole movie and then they become friends at the very end. Like yeah. at the very tail end of the third act, something happens that makes these people come together. I think that's an interesting way to look at when you go to about writing these then, of making sure the comedy is coming from character in that way versus situations. I remember we were having this conversation a lot when you started writing, I forget which buddy cop movie yeah, you're writing them. specifically of course um, you're the resident buddy cop guy i know you're uh, the yeah, i freaking love buddy cop movies. <laughs> they're amazing but yeah. i remember us having this conversation where you were talking to i think it was your manager at the time just trying to come up with the idea and like the tone of it yeah. and you were like i'm really struggling because i'm trying to tell him i want it to be lethal weapon i want it to be mr and mrs Smith, where it's a drama with like humor layered over that and there's just like so much conflict because he couldn't wrap his mind around that so curiously when you started your last buddy cop movies, yeah, um, where did the idea come from for you? Where, what was the instigator there for those ideas? The, my last one that I had written was the the engagement one was like Mr. and Mrs. Smith meets Meet the Parents, yeah, and that I that's always that was like stewing in my head for a really long time, like years, like maybe I was getting engaged at the time. Hmm. And I was like, wow, what if her parents that I already know are assassins or something like that? That idea idea. dates all the way back to then. It it was always in my head. Yeah. Let's kind of look at if you can, because I I feel like we've all watched, rewatched this pretty recently. Um, Do you feel like there are any moments in Lethal Weapon that play in a way that we love, sort of more dramatic or more subtle that if handled by someone now where we're doing buddy comedies would probably be like a comedic situation instead of the dramatic version that we have here. So I feel like I want to bring up a scene that I saw last night in the director's cut. Okay. Which, oh. which I had never watched before and you guys have never seen, I have right? I've never seen Correct. it, yeah. I didn't know it existed. Um, and I was, I was very excited. And there is a scene. It's so crazy. So 
It's very early on. We are it's we already had met Riggs when he wakes up with a cigarette in his mouth. But then <laughs> it come but then it comes before the Christmas tree scene. Okay. Um and he's basically like starting his day and he gets in the car and he gets a call. And he takes the call and he drives, pulls up to an elementary school. And there's a sniper shooting at elementary school children who are all like terrified, like huddled behind like a thing on the playground. Holy I remember that shit. scene. I've seen so, that so scene. you have seen it. I have seen that scene. Yeah. Yeah. And Riggs goes walking up to the scene and like the detectives there, like filling him in. You see a police officer run by him, cradling a crying little boy who's just been shot. And oh. and and Riggs is just like, like, I'll take care of this. Lights a, lights a cigarette and just walks onto the playground, yeah. and the uh, the sniper starts firing at him, and like the dust is kicking up like all around him. Terrible, terrible aim that yeah, the sniper has. Um, because he's panicked. Right. Yeah. And Riggs starts like taunting him. He's like, "Hey, bud, do you want to kill me or do you just do kids?" And so then like the guy's firing at. <laughs> so the so then the guy's like firing at him some more, and then Riggs just pulls his gun and unloads the entire clip into this guy, and then. Like turns around, takes a cigarette out of his mouth and like throws it off to the side and Fuck. just and just goes marching off the playground. <laughs> I love Riggs. Yeah. I absolutely remember that scene. I thought I remember it so clearly. I thought like, oh, it must be in Lethal Weapon 2. And I just misremembered. No, I had never seen that before. Oh, wow. And I was like, holy shit. Interesting. Yeah. That's pretty intense. It serves like the exact same purpose as the Christmas tree drug scene. But the Christmas tree scene is still in it. Yes. That's interesting because obviously the Christmas tree scene is better. Do we um, know he's a cop at that point? The Christmas tree scene? No, right? That's right. when we find out yeah. he's a cop for the first time. Yeah. That is interesting because like 1987, we obviously don't have the same mindset or they don't have the same mindset as currently in 2020. Much more innocent. People yeah. didn't think that anyone would be shooting any anywhere, you know, like like that or, you know, like how it is, how it is now with uh, elementary schools and whatnot. So that sounds like a really crazy, impactful scene but they chose the Christmas tree scene. Uh, if it's if they're doing the exact same thing to kind of express how crazy he is. But yeah, the Christmas tree scene is out. definitely more entertaining. Yeah, because you get like the jokiness before he reveals that he's a cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where he's like counting the money, you know. Whereas the the school shooting scene is definitely darker, and also yeah. um, it played a little bit campy when he's like walking out into the the yeah. playground and like. The, oh, yeah. the bullets are going like all, land, like landing all around it, it was, him. It was badass. Yeah, I mean, it, it like is. It's definitely badass, but it's it felt very much out of like Dirty Harry. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Jesus Christ. I think of like going back to the original question, which is where would someone Sharp now. Sharp taking us off track. Yeah. No, that's that not was off an track amazing off track. It's <laughs> um, on track. Thinking about like where someone would do comedy. Like that scene would never exist in a current buddy comedy. No. Buddy no, cop no, movie. No. Not only just because of the subject matter is very sensitive now, but like that m- kind of moment like would never exist mm-hmm. right now. You know uh-huh. what stuck out to me with like the comedy is the, this is not, not funny, but the suicide scene where the, with the jumper yeah. and he handcuffs him. Yeah. Um, I feel like if this were a buddy comedy movie, you know, if Gibson's on the roof and he's like talking about, he's trying to bring the guy down. He's like, hey, you know, my... You know, I get it. My wife is this. My my life is like this. My boss is like that. You know, and he's kind of like throwing out these like funny anecdotes about why his life is so bad. But the dialogue would kind of come off as a bit more funny. So yeah. when you hear it, you're like kind of chuckling at it. And you're yeah, there'd be jokes. There'd be actual somehow. jokes, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas 
he was certifiably fucking crazy. But even so, like, it's almost goofy the way he is currently in Lethal Weapon, I felt. Like, the way he was delivering That's to the That's one comment that my, my boyfriend who watches for the first time in his entire life a couple weeks ago felt that it was a little bit over the top. That... That Riggs's performance. Let's talk jo- about jo- this. Josh's team. Lethal Weapon is dated. No, I don't. I don't think it's dated. I but I see the argument for the, the like. I here's the thing. Let's say this script was currently turned in and was produced in 2020. I feel like nothing would be dated about it. Like I feel like the script is not dated. I just feel like some of the shots and some of the music choices don't and, do not diss the saxophone yeah, what is happening that is blasphemy it's, it's called classic film. cinema josh <laughs> and the credits for instance i think i messaged you guys both of this the credits were like with the saxophone playing so and good. it's just like zoom, like isn't people. jingle bell rock playing during the credits in the beginning yeah i don't think so yes it is i think so too really 100 percent Oh God! I just threw saxophones into the Jingle Bell Rocks. With the we're, blue- z- we're zooming over Los Angeles with the blue credits coming up and Jingle Bell Rocks playing. Jingle Bell Rock? That's a song, right? Yeah. Yeah. Shit. So the point being is, I see kind of like the argument for the datedness of the movie. I get it. I totally understand. Well, it, it was made in 1987. Yeah. No. It's actually I'm impressive just- how much has maybe withstood the test of time. These are things that have been copied and made fun of in like Loaded Weapon and other movies <laughs> right, that sure. have spoofed it along the way. And by the way, this was like, as weird as Gary Busey is in this movie, this is like normal Gary Busey. By the way, did you know that before this, Gary Busey was an Academy Award nominated actor and he had never been a villain until this moment? Really? Really. So much so that he was like in a place in his career where it was slightly dying down, but he was so well respected because he had just played Buddy Holly in the Buddy Holly movie that, wow. that he was not coming in for auditions, but because he was going to be a villain, he's like, I'll come in for auditions and I'll read for this just to prove that I could do it. And it sort of rejuvenated his career. But I like, when I think of Gary Busey, I like only think villain. I think of Mr. Joshua. Yeah. And I think of Keanu's partner. Right. And point break. I thought you were going to say entourage. That's, that is when I think of like crazy Gary Busey, that is what I think of. I think maybe what? that's it. I just think of real Gary Busey and I just think villain <laughs> Mr. Joshua. What if Gary Busey's audition was to see how long he could withstand a uh, lighter underneath <laughs> his arm? <laughs> you guys are gone, man. <laughs> All right. So I, I understand the argument for outdatedness. I don't think it's outdated. I don't think the script's outdated. I don't think the writing's outdated. I think you're right. I Which think is a really the, good point. Because I think I think jokes can become outdated for very sure. quickly. Yeah. So if you're course. relying on jokes, that's also something that's going to age really poorly. I feel like the age. one in this movie that's sort of like a runner that's a little, probably a little bit outdated yeah. is the uh, the female police psychiatrist who nobody takes seriously. <laughs> <laughs> The, the nagging female. I kind of thought about that, but it also feels so specific to her character because she's just such a bizarre, unique person on her own. It didn't feel like it was a comment about women and just who she was. I do feel like they lean into that later in the series, but is that really the case just in this one? Like, I feel like in this one, she's just like pleading her case for why Riggs is dangerous. Yeah. And the captain is just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she I'm is going like to the men's room. The only woman who has real lines in this movie. That's fine. Let's go. Keep moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and uh, Murtaugh's wife. 
And we're okay, we're tossed away. That's very true, obviously. And Dixie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Murtaugh insults her, and you're like, it's uh-huh. supposed to be like, yeah, Murtaugh, get her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That, that was something that didn't age well. <laughs> yeah. Make fun of the poor prostitute. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, another moment that felt just to like hammer this <laughs> question oh god <laughs> over and over again but the, the idea of like where lethal weapon does such a good job at staying true to the drama versus going full buddy comedy route is i think like that moment in in the desert in the third act when yeah. like murtaugh is uh kind of face to face with mr joshua and the bad guys and he's sort of threatening them i feel like in a like i could see the rock being in that moment and giving like shitty joke lines mm-hmm. at that point like making fun of Mr. Joshua or whatever the fuck, but it wow. plays very dramatic because he's here to, I mean, he, he's a smart ass, but not in a way that's. Yeah. There's nothing funny not about that scene. Yeah. There's nothing funny, but that very much could probably would be a comedic scene now. So that's the last thing I wanted to say about what. So wait, but you never said what your boyfriend thought was dated about the movie. Oh, well <laughs> he thought the villains were, ext- he thought Riggs's perf- uh, Mel Gibson's performance was very dated. But also that the villains were extremely cliche and yeah, I wouldn't say like outdated, but just very cliche. And I was horrified by that because I always thought that these villains were so clearly defined. I mean, obviously they fade to the background after that moment in the club with the lighter under his arm. But I think that scene is so powerful for me that I forget that they just become regular bad guys. Yeah, because actually thinking about it, I don't like strongly disagree with that take, but yeah. I also think that they don't matter to the movie. I like for a moment, I was like, I just didn't remember the bad guy stuff. It's like I remembered everything from the first half of the movie. Well, I feel like that's that's why I say that I don't think that they really matter is because like right. I feel like the purpose that they serve is bringing Riggs and Murtaugh together. And yeah. this case is what like, you know, is a driving force behind Riggs finding a family, um, yeah. as, as you put it. And the villains are just sort of like a tool to do that. Let me ask you this from a writing perspective. If you take the villains out of this movie, would the movie still exist? Well, here's what's interesting to me about the villains. And I think I may have to, it's very painful, but kind of side with the fact that they are maybe cliche. I hate saying that because I love them, but I feel like they are. But I think that the importance they play is that they are also vets. And obviously our two leads are mm-hmm. both vets. And it's very clear that the bad guys are not getting over their history. Yeah. Right? They're still steeped in war. They still have that mentality. And our good guys are trying to heal and become family and get over that. So that's why I feel like their backstory is at least important. Although that's not really talked about yeah. in the, I, the, the The one funny line that I love in the desert is when the general is walking Riggs back. And Riggs says something. It's just like, yeah, I ran into some of those shadow company pussies back in Saigon. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, it's like real, like (laughs) subtle dig that the general doesn't even respond to. Which by the way, shadow company. Yeah. That's what I thought of when you, when you brought that up. Movie that Shane Black tried to write on his parents' bank account. (laughs) Oh man. I guess your story is true. Could be true. Uh, And I also, sorry. Go for it. I was also just going to say, like, I don't necessarily even think that the villains are cliche. Mm as much as they are stock, mm-hmm. which I feel like there's a difference because I feel like the sure. I feel like these villains don't like lean into any real overt cliches. Right. I just I just feel like they are there's the general and then there's Mr. Joshua and then there's just a bunch of henchmen. 
See, I, I feel like I have not seen a setup of a villain that's as cool or memorable as that yeah, in a really I think that's long a great time. Scene. Like, I almost wonder if you have a movie like this where it's not about the villain plot. That's a that's a B story to your main story. If you do just set up your bad guys in a really cool way that no one's ever seen, and then just like let it go. Yeah. And then you don't have to because a note that I feel like I always get. I'll take some more. <laughs> Margarita refill. Casamigos refill. Well, note that I feel like I always get in these movies uh, that I'm when I'm writing them is the villain story has to be completely intermingled with your hero's story, and it has to be thematically appropriate. Others, otherwise, why are these villains even in this movie? Mm-hmm. I think this is a good example of why you can say to anyone who's giving you that note, "Well, like look at Lethal Weapon." The villain story is not the story I'm telling. It's just a catalyst to get my characters together. And yes, there's this thread, as we were saying, of these vets who can't get over the war, whereas our guys can, but that's not the main story. And I'm just telling that to myself to remind me to do that when someone else gives me that note. That's a really good tip. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, as Lethal Weapon is being played in the background, I always think about with drone shots, uh, or not drone shots, but like the overhead shots, of how expensive they used to be uh-huh. to how and now literally anybody can do it. Yeah. Inexpensive they are now. It's crazy. Yeah. I, was that, I feel like that movies. used to be like the touchstone of like production value. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's like, Oh, let's go to the Apple store and buy a drone for $250 and create that shot from the Goonies. Um, I think, and obviously we've covered a lot of this already, but to get specific, what do you like the most about this movie in terms of, um, a scene that you just feel is just so well written. What is your favorite moment in the movie in terms of the writing? In terms of the writing. In terms of the writing. It's definitely not this scene for me where Rianne, the daughter. The worst runaway ever. Yeah, when the two guys who are holding her are shot and she just screams and jumps up and down. Yeah. That is and, not my favorite scene. And then when she's driving the limo and it gets yeah. stuck and she has to get out and immediately trips and does not even attempt to get back up. <laughs> well, girls are pretty useless. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> so this is uh, <laughs> um, probably a testament to the great relationships between Gibson and Oh, Glover. I got mine. I know mine. You know yours, but like saying this so I don't forget. While you're saying that, like so much of my memory of this movie is the first half of it, which Mm. is all character development and all relationship development between the two of them. And as we kind of like watch this and we think about the uh, third act or the yeah the third act and beyond, it's great and all, and I love like the resolution. But I don't. None of this is like my favorite part of the movie, like at all. The last half. The last half, no. Everything that I love about this movie takes place in the first half. Interesting. Yeah, because the last half is just, we're really leaning more into the villain story. Yeah, I would- aren't interested as much in that. I would like, I like like 75, I love 75% of this movie and then- Like once the daughter gets taken. Yeah. Then yeah. it turns into somewhat of a completely different movie. And you yeah, know, I can see that. You know exactly where it's going. So to answer your question about like a specific scene, well, Dave, you answer yours and I'll- then answer mine from a writing perspective mine is when Riggs is leaving dinner at the Murtaugh house mm. and he says uh, you don't trust me at all do you and Murtaugh says something about like you know make it through tomorrow without killing anybody especially me or yourself and, and then I'll trust you yeah and then Riggs kind of gives this uh he tells a story about how mm. he like he did a guy from however many yards out in the war and that there's only like eight to ten people in the world who could make that shot. Yeah. And how it's like the only thing that he was ever good at. Yeah. And it's just a um I feel like everything from like how it's written to the way that that scene is shot 
um, is really like in watching it last night, I was like, damn, this is a pretty powerful scene. Uh, so that would probably, probably be my top. That's a good scene. Like character moment. And like, I like too that Murtaugh doesn't really respond, mm-hmm. which feels realistic. If someone tells you that story, right. it's just so heavy. How do you even respond to that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that too. And it, it just explains a lot about Riggs's character. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, for me, the, my favorite parts are all those Rig moments where we learn more about him because he, he is just billed as crazy. And then you get these little hints that there's something more going on underneath there. And as a writer and as a viewer, I love feeling empathy for characters that um, it's unexpected to feel empathy for them for. So to me, like the mo- that moment is great. The moment where he nearly kills himself when he's looking at the picture of his wife and their cartoons playing in the mm-hmm. background. And it's so complete. It's such a complete picture. Like something so innocent in the back. It's Christmas. That's usually a time when people feel the most lonely and he's about to kill himself. He has a bullet. Like everything, every single detail in that moment mm-hmm. is so powerful to me. And it makes me so sad for him. And I'm immediately on the ride and want him to succeed. Right. Even though he's a crazy fuck who just like killed people at the Christmas tree place, right? Like, yeah. So that to me is, is is my favorite moment, I think. That's definitely, that's probably my second favorite moment. Like that's, yeah. w- when we talk about most memorable scenes, that's definitely, that's probably the most memorable scene for me in the movie. Yeah. Is, is that, that It's interesting there. how many details, I also wonder like how many details were in the script mm-hmm. um, or that sort of came organically. Another great, another guy. great one that I just thought of that I was really like really enjoyed last night from, and this like really leans into the like buddy action comedy aspect. Yeah. But uh, after after the scene where Riggs jumps off the building with a guy, mm-hmm. and then the whole thing with in the storefront after we cut to they're like parked on the side of the road, and Riggs is like eating something like on the trunk, and we're toss talking to the. The, thera- the police therapist mm-hmm. and he gets off and he's like walking back to the car and Riggs is like like you want me to drive and, and he's like no <laughs> and, and then they jump in and then you cut to like they're driving and Murtaugh just like muttering under his breath to himself and then you just see Riggs in the passenger seat just looking at him like he's crazy yeah like yeah. Riggs is looking at Murtaugh like he's totally insane yeah and then you and, yeah, and then, and then it's and then, and then it even becomes like a t- like kind of a touching scene because then Riggs makes an effort to sort of like get on Murtaugh's good side. Yeah. Like he finds out that it was his birthday and he, right. t- you know, he tells him happy birthday and then like has to like reinforce, like, I mean that like ha- happy birthday. Yeah. And I feel like that's like one of the, f- probably the first moment in the movie where there's like a softness between them, where yeah. we can see the bond, the very, the very seeds of the bond that, that Shit, will grow. where does that come in the movie? Does that come before or after the pool death? Before. That's right before. Okay. I think they're driving to the house yeah. in Beverly Hills right. in that scene. Because to me that like writing wise feels like a really powerful moment that they're building to where they don't trust each other. They're pissed off at each other in mm-hmm. the car, but they have this like slight tender moment where maybe Murtaugh's like, maybe this guy's okay. He really is wishing me a happy birthday. But then they get to this scene and even as they're like walking up, I feel like he's telling, yeah, he's telling Riggs, like just don't fucking kill anybody. Okay. Right. Just like, yeah. keep it in your pants, man. And then let me deal with this. And then what happens is Riggs's style is what saves Murtaugh's life in the end. Right. Like he's, he's telling him like, look, like I got the guy down and he's fine. He's still alive. Yeah. And then the guy has a gun that he's, he's holding. And to me, that's a very pivotal writing point where after that, that's when they finally like really trust each other because now he's just saved Murtaugh's life and Murtaugh mm-hmm. knows he can trust this guy. 
um, doing it his way. And that to me is just like a huge, a really great way to do a turning point yeah. that feels very organic to yes. who everybody is. So good. So good. So good. Can I just say <laughs> one thing about everything that was said, but this, what I'm going to say is probably more important than all of that. <laughs> um, so uh, that scene b- during the suicide scene, and then at the very end of the scene, he says, I'm hungry, let's go eat. But right before that, he was eating a hot dog. Yeah, and <laughs> and so I was watching with my roommate last night, and he when Riggs is eating the hot dog, he was like, God, how does Riggs make like a hot dog look so good? <laughs> and it really he he's really chewing in like a very specific way. Like I feel like it's like a really big bite. Yeah. And like you can see the food like packed into like the side of his mouth by his cheek and yeah. just really like gnawing it. And and I was like, Yeah, that hot dog looks amazing right now. There are you know what? That's just unrelated to any of this, but like hot dogs can be eaten and they like, they look amazing Mm -hmm. when they, when they're eaten properly, (laughs) (laughs) when they're done properly, you know, you have like the relish and the mustard and everything. Uh, That, that scene was a great commercial for, for hot dogs. Yeah. (laughs) It made me want a hot dog. We should go, go grab some dogs after (laughs) this. Let's go. go. (laughs) All right. All right. So things we love, we already talked about. What did you dislike the most about this movie? Writing wise. Nothing. Go. Next next question. (laughs) I don't think I have an answer. I don't. And I actually left this blank. You have something, (laughs) Tasha. Go. No, I don't think, I mean. uh, Writing wise? I don't know. The women are stupid, but fine. Okay. I I have a nitpick. Yeah. And maybe you can answer this for me. When I was watching it last night. Is there ever a conversation early on about like the body count that Riggs has or anything? Because related to the conversation we were just having about the scene where he kills the guy at the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're walking in, Murtaugh's like, just don't kill him. And then after he kills him, when they're getting out of the pool, uh, Murtaugh's like, have you ever met anybody you didn't kill? Right. <laughs> and, 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 and That's I, a good line. <laughs> but I, it, it, it's, it's a great line, but I was kind of thinking like that's – that's the first person that Murtaugh has seen Riggs kill. Yeah. Has he heard somewhere that he kills a lot of people? Because we know because we know that he's suicidal. Right. Well, he said, remember when he was in the parking lot, he said, I heard about what you did with the Christmas tree stuff. Right. Okay. So, so it's like heard- a reference to that. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. So this reminds me actually of what I was saying earlier before the podcast um, about how Shane Black said he had talked to some cops about just sort of like let tell me stuff that goes on in the police department so I can get some inspiration. And they started telling him about psycho pension and how there are guys who would, if they want a vacation and they want a paid vacation, they will go psycho quote unquote. And where they were literally, there are cases where guys, cops would go out, they'd pull their gun and they would shoot above like just an everyday citizen's head, like just shoot, like fire off three shots above their head. Um, and then they'd be deemed psycho. So they could take a few weeks off with paid. Jesus. So that's a real thing. And then obviously that's a jumping off point for Riggs. But I wonder if like Riggs has had moments like this in his past that Murtaugh is referring to because they all think that he's just trying to pull psycho pension. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe he's, I mean, obviously there was that scene where he shot the, the guy at the school. So clearly like the way he handles stuff is just killing people. And maybe in this world, it's okay to kill bad guys. So. Mm. Okay. Question answered. Uh, yeah. Um, I sort of wanted to talk about character arcs in this movie. Uh, do you feel like Murtaugh has a character arc? 
Um, Riggs obviously has a very clear arc to me. He yeah, Riggs a family. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about arc, you have to talk about where characters set up and where they end. So where? how do you set up Murtaugh? We set up that he has this beautiful family that he loves Just and that he's 50. excited to retire. Right. So does this? Does he no longer want to retire at the end? I guess that's not explicitly stated. It's not, no. No, but in Lethal Weapon 2, we know that he didn't retire. Right. Yeah. Um. No, so I guess Murtaugh's arc, he has a friendship arc, of course, right, yeah. bringing Riggs into his family, but he himself doesn't really have a, his own personal arc. Right. Maybe that arc is enough, though, for a character. It's be like, not fuck as- this guy, he's going to ruin my retirement, he's going to ruin my life because my life has been so clean and easy as a cop, and now he accepts it by the end of the movie. It's not as evident as Riggs, for sure. Yeah, it's not as extreme. I feel like Riggs is like a bigger overall life arc. Yeah. Whereas... Whereas Murtaugh's is very specific to the relationship, which the movie is about. Very so true. I think it's okay and it works. That's interesting, yeah. But it's sp- specific to that relationship. So is this a Riggs movie? I mean, I think that Riggs is the more important character because he's the one who has like a life-saving change, right? Yeah. His, his arc arguably yeah. saves his life. What do you feel like is the, I think, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you guys, but I think the turning point the middle turning point for the characters in the arc for Murtaugh for me is when uh, Riggs saves his life at the pool. Do you feel like, A, if, do you agree with me? But B, where do you feel like is Riggs' turning point where he starts to become more of a, the family guy? Well, I definitely agree with you about Murtaugh's turning point because it's right after that scene that he invites him, that he invites Riggs to family dinner. Right. Yeah, cause and effect. Yeah. So I think that that's correct. For Riggs, part of me wants to say it's like, it is the family dinner yeah. because that's when he sees the family in the home that I think this guy has too. built. Yeah. yeah. Very. Important. I agree. Family dinner as the middle point. And then the end, I think it's so epic. Um, obviously the end, they're both or Riggs is fighting Mr. Joshua in the water. On the Which is one lawn. of the most ridiculous scenes. <laughs> so awesome. And, like, I just love that. There's so many cops there. And Murtaugh's like, don't arrest the bad guy. This is a prize fight. And then when Mr. Joshua has like a lamppost that he could kill this police officer with, instead of like, shoot him, it's like, here, take this nightstick. Incredible. It's so ridiculous. So good. Yeah. That's the kind of shit that's like outdated. Like that moment. But I in the but in it. the best possible way. Yeah, in the yes. best possible way. The rain is coming down. Uh-huh. It's so great. Do you, do you find Gary Busey attractive? No. Okay. Anyway. I'm not sure that. women do find him attractive. I'm sure women. There are women out there. Wow. You just threw every oh, Gary Busey I'm lover. sorry, people who love Gary Busey. Okay. <laughs> um, do you find 30-year-old Mel Gibson attractive? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of like my favorite scenes does. is the scene where he gets up and he's not wearing clothes. Mm-hmm. Although I noticed as a 37-year-old woman watching this now, he has a very hairy... <laughs> Harry yes, and that I did not notice that growing up. We're looking very closely. Oh, yeah, I've seen it many times, the, so this time I was really watching. So this is uh, un, well unrelated to that, but um, it's uh, unrelated well, to Mel Gibson's ass. No, well, like about like the age of Mel Gibson <laughs> yeah. and Danny Glover. So how old did you think Mel Gibson was when we were watching this? At the very very youngest, thirty five. Okay, Tasha, yeah. age of Mel yeah, Gibson. Same. 35? Yeah. I actually thought, uh, yeah, he was like 40. I, I would have not batted an eyelash. And he's 30. So how old is Danny Glover in this movie? 
are uh, like actually in this movie. He's 41. And he's playing a 50 year old? Playing a 50 year old retiring cop. Jesus. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. But he does it so well. He does. I mean, that's kind of what they were saying too. And um, like Richard Donner made a comment how like his performance is so good at playing sort of an older dude in this that he pulls it off even though he's younger. He does look 50 in this movie. He does. To be real. And I feel like I've just always thought of Danny Glover as like an old man because of that. Yeah. Agree, agree, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Like Maggie Smith, just they've always been old. <laughs> <Right. laughs> they've always been the same yeah, age. for sure. All right, moving on. <laughs> um, but just to kind of like finish the art comment, because oh, yeah. I think this movie specifically has a, an amazing visual in terms of the arc, where obviously they're, they have completely different setups or completely different locations when we set them up. But at the very end of the movie... If, if you go back and watch it, when they shoot Mr. Joshua, yeah. um, they are literally like stand, like almost hugging. They're so close together mm-hmm. and they're like both shooting Ooh. him at the same time. And it's this, it's just like an incredible visual of what has actually occurred in terms of the arc. No. Yes. You pointed that out, I think, in like the Facebook discussion. Yeah. It on really the hit me when Facebook I page. It. And now when I watched it after you pointed that out, I was like, that's absolutely brilliant. Kind of winding down here, let's break down what the structure of this movie is. Okay. What do you, the, the setup I think is obvious. We've already talked about that. Yeah. These two guys who are complete opposites. What is the inciting incident? Well, I, I think the inciting incident is when Murtaugh realizes the jumper was his daughter's friend. Interesting. I would say the inciting incident is when they get partnered up. Agree. That makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's the inciting incident to this character journey for sure. Right. So that makes sense. I thought that was more entering into the, like the act two. I feel like the proverbial the, break. I feel like the jumper is, I think the break into act two. Interesting. Why do you feel like that's break into two? Because I feel like that's when, uh, that's when the moment when Murtaugh is the most like, Oh shit. Oh shit. What have I gotten myself? Right. Into? Exactly. Because that's also the moment, like, after that, we're fully on board the the story of the case. Yeah. Because then from there, they go to the Interesting. the Beverly Hills house. I like that. What, that what, right. what did you think it was? I don't know. <laughs> what? It's, the, it's, yeah. Because I thought, a, the, like, the second act started when you meet Mr. Joshua. And like, like, you start learning about, like, all the villains. Mm-hmm. Did you guys not feel that way? Well, what's interesting is, like, you're giving these kind of plot turning points and you're hitting on sort of the character turning points because that is that jumper is as, as you mentioned before josh it's like not at all related to the case at hand yeah. so it's like a side quest but it's interesting that you you jumped on that as an, a break and tag too yeah. what I are like that what are characters just tell me what plot is <laughs> so, <laughs> i'll plug in the characters give you plot points. <laughs> just give me my plot points and i'll tell you what the characters are uh, so then the first half of act two, as you, as Dave was saying, was like, so they, now Merton knows he's, he's, he's kind of fucked with his partner, but now they start investigating a little bit more heavily. Right. And that's when you have the Dixie lead, right? And the mm-hmm. house blows up and now right. they're, no, they're really onto something with the, um, the, now they're, no, they're, they're in over their head because this device is like made by a professional. And then I think the midpoint is when Riggs saves Murtaugh's life at the pool. Oh, wow. I thought it was when the house blew up. The <laughs> M- Murtaugh. We're all in on the plot. <laughs> yeah, Murtaugh saves Riggs's or um, Riggs saves Murtaugh's life at the pool before the house blows up. Okay, you you would know you watched it last night because I'm pretty sure the scene from the scene in the storefront where Murtaugh dares him to kill himself. Yeah, I believe we then cut to 
Murtaugh talking to the therapist at the side of the road. And then yeah. they get back in the car. And then I think Riggs is like, where are we get You got to tell me where we're going. Oh, yeah, and then they drive. And he's the like, house. we're driving to this house in Beverly Hills. You're right. You're right. So from a character standpoint, my my midpoint would be when he bears his soul. Because that's when, to you, the relationship really changes. In the, you mean the character? Yeah. Yeah. I would argue that it's when they find the device. Mm. Because then they realize that they're going that they're going to need each other. Yeah. To get through this. I love Ooh. that, Dave. I like that too. Yeah, Just the I've, way you phrased it. I know. I've, I've never even thought I'm about this before, idea. but I think that that's it. Okay. Yeah. Now because my my immediately my mind went to like when Michael Hunsacker gets killed, right. but that's much more plot. That's very plot. And I think from it doesn't the, tend to have an effect on anyone else either. It's right. just a moment. And I think from the 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 character perspective, yeah, it'd be when they realize that they're in over their heads, and that they're going to need to trust each other. What's like the low point then? Well, is, well probably is, when Riggs' daughter, I yeah. mean, when Murtaugh's daughter gets kidnapped. Yeah. All right. That's what I thought as well. But I didn't know if that was a character or a plot moment. It's both. Mm-hmm. It That's both. when it combines. That's when it mashes together. Interesting. Fuck this movie. It's the crazy. breakdown. Yeah. 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 All is lost. The daughter has been taken. Yeah. Second half of Act 2 is, oh, shit, we're in way over our heads. This is much bigger than we thought it was. Break into three is... The desert. The desert. It feels like they're they're gonna win. They've got this totally handled. How is this sniper Riggs not going to win the day? Yeah. And then they get taken. He's an expert shot. He made that smiley face earlier. Yeah. Don't do it, son. Yeah. You're not that good. And then we're watching, I think, the climax now, which is when Riggs and Murtaugh are able to escape the bad guy's yes. lair. Yeah. Making a and war zone out of Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's and still a lot you- of cocaine in this. It's not raining over the Hollywood sign, but there's it's still over the general all over the general's face. Everyone's still running throughout Los Angeles. Really I love sweating. here when Murtaugh just starts laughing when the car explodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the re- resolution is our two guys coming together to, yeah. to beat up Mr. Joshua. To meet up Mr. Is that the resolution? No, I thought it was like when they come together and like fucking Riggs is at his house. I'm not sure that I've always I'm not sure that I've always understood exactly what the resolution is but yeah i that's what i like my I understanding like the of moment where they like is. both shoot they both shoot mr joshua and uh-huh. like super close that feels to me just like symbolically as like the resolution yeah yes resolution sort of emotionally. A1. that's yeah. the completion of the arc right yeah right so that's a questionable breakdown of yeah i feel like that's an okay breakdown questionable well we i feel like there was some uh disagreements yeah there was some but i think we i think we got there all right <laughs> uh-huh. all right <laughs> Um, Josh and I were talking before this started sort of about the writing process and how like Josh was talking about getting notes back from his manager and how, on. Yeah. <laughs> how like, you know, his manager had sort of dialogue issues and the comment from a writer is like, okay, yeah, like that stuff can be fixed, but like, how's the structure? How are, how's the other stuff working? Because we can do a pass on that. And it just sort of made me think of how alone writers can be in our writing process of it's just me all the time and maybe I have a manager but they're not a writing partner and so like sometimes you do need a partner to help you with dialogue or whatever um and then it made me think about like how Shane Black writes and I find it very interesting that he again like I 
I have always thought of him as just like this remarkable genius writer who just does everything on his own. Right, which he is. But if you look back at how he writes, <laughs> he tends to write with partners and they may not be credited partners, but he tends to write with buddies and he'll send scenes back and forth to his friends and then they'll write scenes and like send it back to him. Yeah. That Joel Silver example with Lethal Weapon where he would just be at his office and kind of like send him stuff. Um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is the first movie I think he ever directed he said he was like, no one would buy his shit because he, he also personally like had this issue where he's just a huge partier and sort of everyone lost faith in him in a way. Um, but he came back with his script, kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Joel Silver still believed in him and was like, okay, we can make this, but we have to make it for a price, which is like $15 million or less. And so he was going into Joel's office and working on the script. And at the time, Joel Silver's executive vice president was this woman named Susan Levin, who um, Robert Downey Jr. was dating at the time. And so Robert Downey Jr. was just like always at Joel Silver's office, just hanging out with Susan. And so Shane Black was like, hey, why don't you just like read this for me? Like, I'm having trouble with this scene. Why don't you just read through it? And suddenly they realized they had a movie, but he's still like bouncing ideas off of everyone. And I feel like we as writers don't think of that. A, we don't like have that sort of working environment, but B, we sort of don't think of that as the way we should work with our producers or work with our friends. Like I sort of feel like I'd never think to go to Dave and be like, Hey, like check out this one scene and then write something on it and then send it back to me. I've really come around on that because a few months ago I developed a script with a friend that like he just then went off and wrote. Um, cause I was busy with, with my own stuff, but just like even like the outlining and development and yeah. beating it out, it was just after only writing by myself for my entire career, it was like a revolutionary concept to me. Yeah. yeah. Where, because I feel like we just having that person to like bounce stuff off with, I feel like we solved issues in 20 minutes that I know for a fact I would have dwelled on for like a week if yeah. it was just me staring at my computer screen. I think at this moment we need to start throwing out this idea that we have to write completely by ourselves. Which is where like the, the spec breakdown idea that I came up with for, for mm -hmm. writer's group kind of comes in. Where for writer's group we do this thing where maybe we just have a log line or it's the seed of an idea. Or maybe we have a full outline. Whatever yeah. it is, we want to write our next spec but we're stuck. We can bring it into writer's group and we'll spend as long as the writer needs really. Anywhere from, I think it's been two hours traditionally. But like if we need to spend more, we spend more. We just sit at a cafe and we just start asking questions and really help this person break down their, their spec idea. I feel like more and more I... I feel like I need that. Yes, and I, I need agree. to stop thinking I can do it all by myself because uh -huh. I have all of these spec ideas that are just like half written because I just can't get there completely on my own. Definitely. And Shane Black is an example of why we don't have to. Y yes, he is. <laughs> no, but it is. It, no, there is no but. I mean, I, I feel like it's every, every writer, it feels like, or people, they, they want to be like, this is like my vision. This is what I want to do. But it's such a collaborative process. And people change things along the way. Like I haven't written a script that hasn't been influenced by you guys. Like, so it's like, I've written a script, but it's like written by me, but it's like sort of written by you guys yeah. and no credit goes to you guys. But like the point being is that I think it's very important to have a support system. I don't know if that's where this was. Yeah, yeah no. And that's sort of the thing too, is like, we're not writing novels. Like, yeah. but when, by the time our movies make it to the screen, so many people are going to have had input yeah, and of had their fingerprints on it and made contributions that make it better. Yeah. And 
you know, like the, the writing is really the beginning of the process. And so because we're not writing novels, I feel like we don't need to be so precious about, because yeah. I was just thinking like how yeah. you just, how you just said about how, like how we want it to be like our vision. Yeah. But I mean, that's not, that's not what film is really. Yeah. I think Lethal Weapon is actually a perfect example because I do think it's still Shane Black's vision, this first movie. It's still this sort of dark character story about a crazy man who learns to have a family. But it's just, it's it has passes along the way that make it a little lighter and yeah. it doesn't take away from his vision. And I, from all accounts of like different interviews I've read, he's still very proud of this movie. Allegedly about all these different <laughs> <Yeah>. visions. <laughs> I still don't know what your sources are, but yeah, that's... Well, yeah, that's neither. <laughs> Did you know Shane Black secretly directed this movie? <laughs> Did you know Shane Black oh uh, secretly only wrote this movie by himself? Uh, but you know what's uh, cool though, by the way, is that 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 scene I sort of depicted of him going into Joel Silver's office and just happening to find Robert Downey Jr. there, a guy who was just out of prison, unemployable at the time, and because Joel Silver set the budget at like fifteen million, that's that's the only way we can make this movie. Oh. It was like, well, let's hire this cheap dude who's worth nothing to Hollywood right now. And so that like that restarted RDJ's uh, career. And he shortly after that got Iron Man 1, which obviously we all know what happened then. So yeah. later, Robert Downey Jr. pays it forward by calling Shane and being like, do you want to do Iron Man 3? Yeah. And I think that's so cool. That comes kind of full circle. So do we want to end with um, Dave's story about meeting Mel Gibson? A meeting is <laughs> the wrong term. Your general with Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's this is, this is the end. Well, no, it was just my favorite celebrity sighting ever. Yeah, I was um, I was out to dinner at Taroni on Beverly across from uh, like CBS, and so where we're seated, we're at a, a two top, and but it's one of those like I'm sitting on a booth. And the booth like runs the length of an entire wall. Yeah. And there are just a bunch of like two top tables next to each other. And then the one next to us is empty. But then, so this is on my right. The one to my right is empty. But then two tables away, there's a guy. And he's on a date with, with a woman. And at one point, as I'm eating dinner, she gets up to go to the bathroom. And I hear this guy just start like grumbling under his breath. And... I start to turn because I thought for a second that he was that he was talking to me, mm-hmm. and I start to turn, but then I stop because I'm like, you know what? He's not talking to me. This guy's just like grumbling under his breath, like kind of, kind of like a crazy person. Yeah. Um. So I so I don't look at him. I purposely purposely do not look at him because I don't want to catch his attention. And then uh, his date comes back, and then you know dinner continues, and a little bit later they finish up and they go to leave. And so his date, you know, gets up and walks and then he has to slide out from the booth. And as he's sliding out from the booth, this guy's talking to himself again, just like grumbling, like really like angrily under his breath. And I now I'm thinking to myself like, holy shit, like this guy is, this guy is crazy. And he slides out from the booth. He walks around, he walks around so I can look up at him and it's fucking Mel Gibson. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. how, how long ago is this? Probably... Three or four years ago, oh, it was a little long. bit before um, Hacksaw Ridge. But yeah, I mean, it was just I like f- I silently freaked out because I mean he was, you know, he was like my favorite actor in my childhood because yeah. of because of Lethal Weapon, of course. And but it also just the quote unquote encounter 
perfectly fit yeah in the narrative um was he bearded mel gibson then like crazy bearded mel gibson he did not have the beard he was cute he was clean cut full honesty he didn't look great oh no uh but he's also been like nominated for an oscar since so i assume he's doing better he got nominated for hacksaw ridge right i'm not sure be you nominated for best director? I'm not sure, but Apocalypto was fucking awesome. Apocalypto is he's an he's an extremely talented human being. He is without without a doubt. He's he's, he's, he's also got he's also got you know some issues, but <laughs> yeah, he was nominated. All right, yeah, poor poor Mel Gibson. Yeah. I will always love Mel Gibson. Dis, I mean, despite his personal mm-hmm. issues, those that that's me as separate as Would a fan. Would you marry Mel Gibson? Would I marry Mel Gibson? No, yeah. of course not. Would you date him? He's not a marryable human. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, n- not knowing him personally. I will say that Martin Riggs will forever be among the pantheon for me of, of favorite movie characters. 100%. This is crazy because as we're finishing the podcast, the credits of Lethal Weapon it's are currently rolling. It's poetic. It's, it just seems, poetic. It seems strange. That's it. That's Lethal Weapon. That's the breakdown of Lethal Weapon from a writing perspective. <laughs> I think we really broke it down. I think so too. Yeah. I, I, I do too. All right. We should now all go write buddy cop movies like it's nothing. And happy National Margarita Day. Please remember to rate and subscribe. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. Music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Spotify.